0: 60 years of family culture. Join the Robson Civil Projects team for the opportunity of a lifetime. The Isuzu MUX
1: is born to tow. Your rugby league coverage on SEN starts now. Welcome to NRL Crunch Time. Yes, it is Crunch Time. Welcome wherever you're listening across the SEN network. I'm Matt White. Welcome to our listeners on SEN 1170 AM in Sydney, SEN Q693 in Queensland, SEN 1620 AM on the Gold Coast and wherever you're listening via the SEN app and the SEN podcast. We are at the Sydney Cricket Ground today ahead of what will be a very emotional match between the Roosters and the Cowboys. James Magnusson and Anthony Seabold are with me for Crunch Time. G'day, gents. G'day, Matty. Good to see you, Missile. We spent a fair bit of time at the Commonwealth Games together. Good to see you as well, Siebs, here on a glorious day at the SCG. It's a beautiful afternoon for footy.
0: Yeah, great afternoon for football. Um, I think the Cowboys, Roosters, game. both teams are in great form. So hopefully we get a good crowd. Um, I know the Roosters generally don't get too many, but they're expecting about 14,000. So uh, get out here and support your team. And uh, yeah, can't wait for the game.
2: I thought on the way in, Maddie, I thought, this is a bumper crowd today for the Cowboys-Roosters game. Yeah. So the car park was packed, people everywhere. People everywhere. And then I realized the City to Surf accreditation tent was set up next door. <laughs> so they weren't actually Roosters fans, they were running enthusiasts. Well,
1: that's exactly what I saw. I got got through the car park and then I popped out and I saw all these people walking around from the Horden Pavilion and then I went, yeah. I did exactly the same as you and then I noticed that they had their City to Surf bibs. Yeah. And I said, hang on a sec, since when did the City to Surf finish at Moore Park? <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't Have even you ever started. done the city to surf? I haven't. I haven't, and I had a very good excuse because during the Channel Ten days of coverage, I commentated the city to surf. So my get is out clause- is it on TV? Is it? Yeah, my oh, get out clause good was had to host yeah. commentate it. Have you
2: done it, Steve? Oops. No, never, no. But um, done it.
0: they they do tell me it's a great um, event. A few yeah. of the, the staff I used to work with at uh, the Rabbitohs um, did it one year, and. They tell me the socialising afterwards is outstanding. The socia- yeah, here, the socialising
2: so. good. This year they'll be running past my house away from the balcony. <laughs> I did it once and about seven kilometres in, I realised exactly why I was a swimmer and not a no runner. runner. And on the home straight into Bondi, when two guys in full-size bananas and pyjamas outfits <laughs> overtook me, that was basically the low point <laughs> That's of my day. day. <laughs> yeah. I had the pleasure of conversating with the great Rob De Costello
1: um, for a couple of years, which was awesome to get his insights. You could have sat there and talked to him all day. And Actually, one of the things we spoke about in our Commonwealth Games coverage, I said to Deek, what's the first thing you look for when you're looking for a runner who's struggling in, in the fatigue sense? And he said, I look at their head, and if their head's starting to wobble, then that's trouble. And I asked the missile the very same question when the Kyle Chalmers stuff seems is going on in the Com Games. What was the first thing that you look for? And you look. You said you look into their eyes, and you could see that he was struggling emotionally and physically, etc. However, he went out and delivered. So it's a really interesting take when you're looking at a footy player out there who you, you might need to replace or who's struggling, what do you look for?
0: Yeah, again, it's body language, but often you're looking for hands on hips or you actually look like on a kick chase line,
2: yeah. you're actually looking for that head
0: wobble as well. Like you, you, you start to have a look at the forwards, the head will wobble on a kick, kick, kick chase line. So um, yeah, body language is key.
2: Just on that, on body language. So remember when you were training growing up and the coach would always say, the best way to get in air is stay upright, hands yeah. on head or something. I read a study the other day, the best position to take in oxygen when you're really gasping, hands on knees, bent over. So remember the coach would always well, say, do. don't bend over. over yeah, here. yeah, yeah. Stand up, <laughs> up, up <laughs> chest high, hands on head, don't bend over. It's a myth. We'll lie to it we, we used to get
0: our penalties down at Canberra when I played years ago down there if we, if we bent over.
2: There you go. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I love busting myths like that. What was your go-to when you are on pool deck to try and put a bit of fear into the opposition? Uh, so the big one in swimming behind the blocks is a bit of slapping. So you can do a slap where you flick your arms and your bicep hits your lat. So if you could do a couple of big slaps and people look across and, oh. Hang on, hang on, hang but, on. Hang, get, get, go back. You do a slap where your bicep. Yeah, so if you flick your bicep down, yeah. it can slap on your lat and make like a clap sound. Right. So you slap the biceps before you race. Blokes are looking along the line at like who they're racing. But this is the this is the big so the big one in swimming was Michael Phelps used to be able to bend over before he raced, slap his arms behind his back, and they'd almost touch each other behind his back. He's got freakishly long arms. And he'd do this big, and slap himself on the back. And uh, I'd heard about it, but never raced him before. And I was leading off the relay for Australia in 2011, and uh, I hadn't looked who was leading off for other nations yet. So I didn't really know who I was racing. They just brought me in for the final. I was leading off for Australia and they blow the whistle to get up on the blocks, and I hear this, whoo. And I looked across, and I was like, holy shit, I'm racing Michael Phelps today. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the first time I ever raced him, but that was his, uh, that was his thing. So yeah. you knew when you were racing Phelps when you heard that big boof. On the on the blocks
1: when he had that body too, like you say, the freakishly long arms and the disgustingly weird torso. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Essentially, yeah. no legs. Yeah, perfectly yeah. built for swimming. Yeah. Oh uh, four five seven seven three six seven three six is our text line if you'd like to be part of the conversation this afternoon, or you can give us a call. One 1170 is the open line. Keep your thoughts coming through, and we'll get through those as we count down towards kickoff between the Roosters and the Cowboys. So eighth versus second. On the ladder, round 22, of course, of the NRL. And it's a picture here at the Sydney Cricket Ground today. However, gentlemen, the uh, the biggest talking point, obviously, over the last few days. And it's been incredible to see the reaction to the news that broke of uh, Paul Green's passing pretty much a month short of turning 50 years of age. So just 49, um, a father of two, of course, a premiership winning coach a man who had coaching and uh, playing links to both of these teams that are going to be out here today, Siebs, the Roosters and the Cowboys. So it's it's going to be a, a weird feeling, I think, out here today. I mean, you know, we're b- at the back end of the season, both of these clubs, especially the Roosters, trying to fight for their position in the top eight, yet there's going to be a dark cloud hanging over this one.
0: Yeah, there certainly is. Um, you know, Paul Green played for the Roosters in, in 2013. He was the under-20s coach and also one of uh, Trent Robinson's assistants. So they won the premiership. Uh, that year, so obviously his legacy is, is quite strong here. And then, obviously, being the uh, the one and only um, you know premiership winning coach with the North Queensland Cowboys um, in 2015. You know, as you suggest, both teams are, are very close to Greeny, and um, you know, tragic circumstances and such a, a shock during the week. And um, you having a long uh, history myself with Greeny, uh, have a coach, having coached against him at every level, have, having played against him many years ago. Um, yeah, just a great deal of sadness and. Um, and, um, you know, I suppose thinking about his family and, um, you know, the, the hurt um, and, you know, you can't imagine how they're feeling. Mm. But, uh, yeah, certainly really sad week.
1: He was a fiery little number seven. When you when you go back and start to remember Paul Green as a player, he was um, an elusive little bloke. I mean, that was back in the days when the jumpers were much bigger than what they are now. So he almost got squallowed <clears throat> up in that number seven <laughs> jersey. But he was a thinking footballer too and a thinker away from the game as well. I remember, you know, in early days through Sports Tonight, etc., when Greeny was coming through, that we'd go and do stories on him when he was learning to get his uh, his pilot's license. He loved it up in the sky, both in fixed wing and in helicopters as well. So. Quite a character both on and off the field.
0: Yeah, he certainly was. He, he was a super intelligent guy. Um, you know, Not only had he got his helicopter's license, he went over to, to Harvard and, and completed a course over there uh, whilst he was coaching the Cowboys. He was forever trying to, to learn and be curious, and, and that was something I admired uh, a whole heap about Granny. He, he um, you know, just didn't think that he knew at all. He, he wanted to continue to grow in that space. And, um, you know, one of the things that people in Sydney probably don't understand was the influence he had on the Brisbane competition back in the early 90s. And I first came up against Greenie in 1992, and I was only 17 at the time, and I was with the Broncos, and... um, they put me with a team called Brisbane Brothers and Brisbane East were one of the the better sides at the time and I remember uh, playing A grade at the call at the time um, coming off the bench and playing against Granny and he was the the, the young halfback who was a bit of a superstar in the competition You know, Queensland under 19 halfback at the time Johnny Lang coached that particular team and um, he made two grand finals in a row as a halfback with Brisbane East and he won the Rothmans medal in 1993 so he had a really Mm. I suppose decorated career um, as a young player before he came down to Cronulla and I know talking to Him, He thought that was a great stepping stone for him to come through that Brisbane or Queensland Cup, it's called now Pathways, um, as a young player, rather than play against guys his own age. Like he was actually a young player playing against men, some who have been and played in the Winfield Cup, as it was called in those days. Um, So I think that sort of set him up to have a really good career uh, when he came down with Johnny Lang in, in 1994. Uh, because he was outstanding for for the Cronulla Sharks. In his second year, as I said, he won the, the Sydney version of the, uh, yeah, the Rothmans medal. 95. So, um, yeah, so outstanding uh, player and probably an even better coach, you'd probably say.
1: 162 first-grade games. He played 95 games for the Sharks. 35 for North Queensland, 20 for the Roosters. Also games for Parramatta and Brisbane. And as you mentioned, a a stellar career before he came down to Sydney. Queensland State of Origin player, Australian representative as well, and um, Premiership winning coach. Uh, 167 games coached between 2014 and 2020 at North Queensland. So such an incredible history at the Cowboys. Um, it, It is James Tedesco's 200th game today here at the SCG. That should be one of the key celebrations. But obviously a lot of thought will go into remembering Paul Green. There will be a minute silence. I've read during the week that Trent Robinson in particular and obviously Todd Payton have said we're keeping an eye on our players. We we, we don't know if any players might be affected and might need to sit this one out, but they're going to keep an eye pretty much all the way up until kickoff, which is great to hear. There will be black armbands uh, worn by both of these teams today, and as I mentioned, a minute silence here at the SCG today as the game remembers Paul Green. Sad news. The rugby league world is in mourning with the sudden death of premiership winning coach Paul Green. The 49-year-old passed away at his Brisbane home, this morning, Thursday. He was my kick and catching coach when I was coming through at the Broncos, and he was also my coach uh, when I was at Wyndham uh, You know, I, a small amount to do with him, but in the time that I did, it was actually really interesting. The year that I was at Wyndham um, I ended up signing with another club to leave, but we had a really tough start to the season, really tough, lost quite a few games. But Greeny managed to turn the Winham Seagulls around. They won the premiership that year, so... He's a fighter, uh, it's a very sad day. Right, but the key thing is, is that we keep our patience. Strong into goal, bend the line,
0: but play patience. Get them into that grime. This week our theme is what? Whatever, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. So whatever it takes, for, for the next 40 minutes, whatever it takes, you find the energy, stick to the plan, trust each other, and back each other up. All right, let's start well. Start well, boys.
1: W-I-T, whatever it takes, uh, a common theme amongst coaches. But when you hear it there being delivered by Paul Green and obviously Cam Smith and Denon Kemp talking about uh, what unfolded on that Thursday, um, uh, it sort of takes you into the fighting spirit of the bloke, doesn't it? He, he was a little guy who was always fighting, whether it was out there as a player or as a coach. So in terms of what you saw from him as a coach, Siebs, what, what do you think the key to Paul Green's success was? I think he was
0: very innovative. I think... Um he, he started coaching at Wintermanly Seagulls. And when I say about innovative, um, we all know Jake Granville now is a hooker and he's been an outstanding hooker for the Cowboys. At that time, um, and I remember what Dan Kemp was talking about, they lost their first four or five games in a row and they went on to win the Premiership that year. One of the changes he made about week six of that season, because I was coaching in Mackay, like for the Mackay team in the same competition, he put great... Uh, Jake Granville, he, he would play him in defence at fullback because he was great at organising the line and he would play a dummy half in attack. And because he was super, he was super, um, you know, fast out of dummy half, almost like a, a younger or an early version of Damian Cook. That's the sort of speed yeah, that Jake well. Granville had back in the day. So as I said, like that, that's quite unusual, isn't it? He'd wear the number one, but he would defend as a fullback, organise the defensive splits, and then play as a, as a nine. So he sort of um, was was out there with his thinking. I think by the time he got to the Cowboys. Um, You know, he had Jonathan Thurston to work with. He certainly changed the way they played. And again, um, you know, Michael Morgan, he changed his positions a couple of times. Uh, He made Jason Tumalala or gave Jason Tumalala great confidence to play longer minutes in that middle third of the field. And um, yeah, he had success at every level. That's that's the thing. He had success as an assistant coach with the Roosters, uh, as a head coach at the Cowboys, and as Queensland Cup coach with Manley, And I think that speaks volumes about his career as a coach.
1: It is uh, very sad circumstances. Obviously, he's passing at the age of 49, and it's led to a further conversation that both of you guys will, will certainly be part of because you've both experienced this, and I have in some ways to my degree with, with, with parts of my career. But it, it leads to that question of how do people cope when things that they um, have achieved very highly at, have put their entire life's work into, all of a sudden come to an end. In Paul's case, it's coaching and w- all of a sudden without a, without a job. In your case, Maggie, it's being a world champion, Olympic representative, and your career swimming career comes to an end. Seebs, you've been through the, the mill as well in terms of coaching as well. So ha- how did you guys deal with that next phase of life and that, that part there when there is a hole I mean, there's absolutely a hole whether it's mental physical or both
2: yeah oh, look I think the toughest thing for me was finding an identity after sport I was known from 11 years old as the swimmer um, you know kids at school are, that's James he's the swimmer into life as a professional swimmer and then you swim that last race you hang up the goggles and you kind of look at yourself and go you know who who am I now what what gives my life purpose what drives me what what gets me out of bed in the morning and uh that's actually quite a rocky road and and you have days where you lie in bed and go what what am i you know now what what am i going to do now and uh i think the the important thing is is that we we have these conversations with each other about um you know at times where i was thinking am i the only one that that feels like I've lost a bit of identity after sport. Do, do other athletes feel that, or is this a unique thing to me? And then you you see things in the media, you, you read articles, and you realise that that everyone struggles with it. And suddenly you go, oh, I'm not alone. That's not a that's not a unique thing. But I think as guys, sometimes we really struggle to verbalise that. And uh, you know, I've probably never really sat down and had a long conversation with anyone and said, hey, you know, I'm struggling a little bit after mm. swimming or I'm struggling a little bit um you know with with my identity and that that's where we've got to be able to take uh, a positive from a really negative situation and say let's have a conversation with each other about you know how we're feeling and rather than internalizing it
1: do you think that i uh, and and obviously this is something that's you know that the message has been Rammed home loud and clear that we do need to talk more as a as a society, especially men, especially Australian men. I mean, if there's if there's a category there that's not going to open their mouths and and be open and honest, it's probably the Aussie male would be front and centre. But do you think there's probably something around the sport in particular, like your sport and swimming, uh, essentially, Maggie? Only only former swimmers are really going to know what it's like to stop being a swimmer and go searching for that identity. So, in Seeb's with your case, do you think that Fellow footballers, fellow coaches are the ones who are going to help you first and foremost. Is is there something there that sport might need to do a bit more of?
0: It's really interesting. Within the NRL now, I think um, every club has two to three uh, welfare um, officers. And they do a fantastic job. I think the players are, are, are very well supported now. Um, I think back in the 90s when I played, um, that we didn't have that support. You know, you got released. It was just, on. you know... You find out what's what's next, whether it's in footy or, or you have to go and work or study or whatever it is. Now there's so much time on either transitioning from being a senior player into what what's next after rugby league or the support that you get in and around your studies, in and around, um, I suppose, your mental health and um, the mental skills you need to perform at the highest level. I think they're catered for as good as it's ever been in rugby league. There is a gap with regards to the coaches. I've got no doubt about that. Mm. Um, there's no formal coaches association. Um, really? There's been... There's been. Surprising, uh, yeah, Trent Robinson's it? been a, a great advocate for it. Um, we've tried to get that um, pl- coaches association off the ground a number of times. Mel Meninga was a big advocate for it. Neil Henry actually was funded there for a while from the NRL. And I've got to say, to Neil's credit, when I went through uh, what I did at the end there with the Broncos, he reached out to me a number of times just yeah. checking in. And it's really interesting. Um, I think there's a bit of a gap there for coaches because um, normally when, you know, coaches know you're gonna get sacked at some stage or moved on, that's the reality of the job, right? So at some stage, as good as you've, you've been or your record's been, or whether you've been a good coach, poor coach, or any, anywhere in between, at some stage you're gonna get moved on. Mm. And and that's challenging because what happens with the media these days, and we're part of the media here. But what happens is it becomes a story, and it's, well, it's the, the it's, churn and burn yeah, becomes yeah, and a and, next. and it's quite and and becomes um, it, individually. You think at the time it's bigger than what it is, right? Yeah. And I know in my case, you know, it was quite interesting, just you know, having media camped out the front of the house for a few days. You know, um, some media trying to jump the fence. When I hopped in the car after I'd come out of um, a fourteen day. Um, stay at home, you know, getting followed in the car. It was, it was quite, quite surreal when I look back on it. Um, but other coaches um, certainly let, you know, lent me a hand, you know, like guys like Trent Robinson. Now, it's, this is the, the sad part about it. I went through my text messages the other day to see when the last time I spoke to Granny, and I flicked through some of the messages. Paul Green on, on the 20th of, of August reached out to me and said, Steve, you want to catch up for a coffee? We'll talk anything but footy. Yeah, you know, that says something about Granny. It gets me a little bit emotional talking mm, about yeah, it now. Yeah, but that's the type of person he was. And coaches like Paul McGregor, Shane Flanagan, Craig mm. uh, Bellamy, Ivan Cleary. I think just about every coach in the competition reached out to me. And you know, there is a great collective there. But sometimes you feel quite isolated because you're the one where the turn and burn is, as you spoke about. Mm. You're the one who's in the in that spotlight or in that firing line. Um, on your way out and it's never really positive about you on the way out is it you know what I mean so it's quite challenging and then I think um, yeah I think you can feel a little bit isolated but I had a lot of support I've got to say from other coaches and people like Phil Gould and Aaron Molan uh, which I've spoken about before with um, social media but um, I do think there needs to be some sort of more formal support for, for coaches not just in the NRL but also in you know in other sports like yeah. the AFL and so on um, I think it's something that we can certainly close the gap.
2: Do you think we're starting to get a little bit of a better picture around the impact that what's said and what's written can have on on not just athletes but anyone in the game? Like you and I were talking, Matty, during the Com Games. Kyle Chalmers obviously really struggled with some of what was written and mm-hmm. said to him on social media. And sometimes people see athletes or coaches as not inhuman, but they're almost like these figures that can't be... Hurt by by what's said or what's written. Um, I mean, Greeny copped a pretty harsh run after Origin last year. Some of the rhetoric around his coaching, and I thought, as a premiership coach, was it's horrible, surprising. It was, ho- it was horrible. Yeah, I yeah, saw that yeah. Commentary. It was horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As if like the guy was new to coaching and didn't know what he was talking about. A premiership <laughs> winner and grand finalist. Um, I think sometimes look w- what's written on social media you can't get away from it and you can never censor 20 million Australians and what they write on social media. But sometimes you can censor what's written in the media, which leads to a lot of that social media hysteria. And I just think sometimes maybe we can have a, a little bit more um, compassion around the athlete or the coach or the person that, that, that's been written about and, and have a think about you know the impact that that's going to have.
1: I definitely think to to your first point. I definitely think that there's there is more of that coming back um, from the athletes because the athletes are now having their say. So the athletes are calling it out, essentially, saying, you know... uh, I mean, up until very recently, if you were the subject of a bad story or or a bad headline or whatever, you had to cop it, didn't you, Seebs? I mean, both of you know that. You you sort of cop it and you really have no recourse. Whereas now, for instance, Kyle Chalmers, et cetera, throughout everything that was going on and all the headlines, he he had his own voice to say that. And he went back out on social media and said, hang on a second, this isn't cool. And I, I think you're right now because it has become more of a two-way conversation and it probably needs to become more yeah, of a two-way and, and conversation.
2: Look, I, I get it from the journalist's perspective, right? Sometimes you've got to write a hard-hitting story and there's things that sell and there's things that people want to read. But uh, it's it's so often and, and you know, we, we speak to journalists in our, our jobs every day and so often the journalist will pass it off as, well, it's just something that I had to write. You know, the story's there so I had to write it and I, I couldn't go soft on it because it's a, it's a big story and you need a reaction. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think sometimes it'd just be nice to go. Y- you know what? Does that need to be written? Does that do I need to go that extra mile to really put the boot in, or can I just highlight what's going on without giving a a, 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 a really scathing uh, assessment of of a person's character? And that's that's where I think uh, we can we can pull the reins back a bit. And it's cer- it's certainly intensified over the years. I mean, I, I remember some of the stuff written about me, and I thought this is like how how sometimes zero truth in the whole article. And you go, how can people write that? But now it's almost like commonplace. If there's there's an article, people and journalists will just absolutely go for it. Mm.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, I think, you know, one of the... One of the positives, I guess, out of having this discussion is exactly that: that the discussions are now being had more and more. Yeah, and definitely. you know, I was listening to Nick Davis on the way in um, out out here, and his story was absolutely sensational. It, I mean, it was. I, it, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: No, it was. It was.
1: Um, yeah, it was fascinating. Great. And and that's the kind of stuff that society needs to hear. It's twenty three minutes after midday. This is crunch time. Brought to you by Isuzu. The Isuzu D Max is born to tow. You can be part of our show. 0457. 736 736 on text or give us a call 1300 01 1170 Matt White, James Magnuson and Anthony Seabold at the SCG ahead of the Roosters and the Cowboys. More after this.